Yeah, that's so wonderful that it can actually um, make us um, try to run after it or run away from it because it's so terrible. We found within that what we need. And because of that, it gives a great deal of self-confidence. It's a first step into self-confidence. What other people say, think, and do, that's fine. But that's their trip. It doesn't matter. We've got it within. And they can argue till they're blue in the face. It doesn't matter. That's why to get to that second step is important. And I have noticed that in many, many people, that second step is more difficult than the third one. They find it not so difficult to go from this pleasant feeling, staying with it, going to the peacefulness, because it is very uh, satisfying to have this this, uh, pleasant feeling. So this third step, which is contentment, it's a peace which is connected with contentment, seems to come easier. I'm always then urging, okay, stay with the peacefulness for some time, whatever length of concentration there is, and come back to the joy. So this is an important second step. And if you have the uh, sensation, uh, you need not keep that for the whole meditation hour. How long does it take to get there to the sensation? Very quickly, oh well, 10 minutes is maximum. And uh, whatever you think are 10 minutes, I mean, it's, you know, a matter of, uh, well, you know, the the mind actually says, without being prompted, at least most minds do, well, that can't be all there is to it. Having worked for months, years, however long to get there, then getting it, finally the mind says, well, that can't be all there is to it. There must be something more. And it actually quite voluntarily drops that sensation and tries to find the joy. But it is easier, having been taught. There's a great deal of uh, uh, time-saving involved when one has been taught. Yes? Yes, you. Are you saying that the sensation or the joy? Which either? The physical. If it goes quickly. Yes. And? Should you then be trying to get back to that at that special stick, or should you stop and recollect? No. If it goes very quickly, that means it hasn't been well enough established yet. So there are two ways of getting back to it. The preferred way, which needs practice, is just getting back to it, just knowing how to get back to it, which means one knows exactly what to do. It's a sort of like a a click in the mind. The mind has clicked out, now you can click it back in, but that needs a bit of practice. If that hasn't happened yet, that you can just get back to it, you just start at the beginning again. You do see the impermanence, you recollect how did I get in there, and you start from the beginning again, whatever method you had to use to get there. But eventually one can just click back in. Hmm? So just go back to the, the technique there and then and see the 
Yes. 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 If you've had the uh, pleasant sensation at that time and it uh, dissolves after a good chunk of time, you go to the joy. Well, yes, but what if I get distracted and... Uh, you start all over again. So I start again at the top. Not what I just said. If you can click back in to the sensation without having to start over at the top, do it. If you have to start at the top, yes, start at the top. Usually, after having done it for a little while, one can just click back in. You see, this is a funny part of this. Um, people meditate and meditate and meditate in order to get there. And when they finally got there, it really is nothing to it. You know, you can do it on a train, in a bus, anywhere. It's nothing. It's the higher stages which are more difficult. It's really, really, really the typical thing that when you want something, it seems great. And once you've got it, it's the same thing always. Yes. Um, so let's say you've reached the second or third or whatever stage. Um, do you still have to start at the first stage every time? Can you click into the... No, it's not a good idea. Okay. It's always, um, in order to become a master of this, we need to know exactly what stage we're at. We have to be able to go up and down at will and also jump. So we have to know them. They have to be so familiar to us like our own home. If you walk into your own home and it's pitch dark, you still know where the light switch is and where the uh, doors are and you know everything about it. This is, has to be like that. It's pitch dark in there, but it's your home. So you've got to know every bit about it. So in the beginning, the instructions are go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and then learn eight down, and then learn to jump. So in the beginning, one, two, three, and four is a deepening of three. Anything else? Everything absolutely clear. No problems. Good. Everybody know exactly what to do with themselves. I really uh, mean that quite seriously because these misunderstandings that happen about meditation instructions, although I try to avoid them by saying things over and over and uh, from every angle, they still happen. Now, you see, you had a misunderstanding because you were doing that which was counterproductive, actually. It doesn't matter because, I mean, you're there doing, you can do it again. But that's why I keep asking, is it quite clear? But the unfortunate thing, of course, is also one doesn't know when it isn't quite clear. That's another part of it, because otherwise one would ask. So everything is quite clear at this point, is it? Mm? Yes. I'm not really all that sure about exactly where the practice of the torture fits into the jhanas. I mean, the like same thing. Moment, oh, you, are you talking about the five factors? Well, yes. I mean, in terms of um, at what point does experience actually become the... At which point do you say that you're experiencing the first jhana and do you know that as a kind of obvious... When you're experiencing piti. 
when you're experiencing the um, the pleasant sensation to the exclusion of everything else. That's the first jhana. Mm. It's a question of degree, I suppose. Uh, the degree is in the, can be in the strength of the sensation, but it cannot be anything that isn't utterly pleasant. Mm. It's, it has to be utterly pleasant. I mean, it can be all different kinds, it can feel like sitting in cotton wool or riding on a cloud or, or floating about or, or being two inches off the ground. and It can be anything, but it's got to be totally other than what it is at this moment. I guess I'm just saying that you can get kind of, well, the Westerner can get little kind of poor tastes of pretty well before that level of concentration. It's sort of stimulated back to the next <coughs> Well, I don't know. A tingling in the back of the neck. Um, I really don't know what that's like. I mean, it's. Uh, I can't say anything about it because I don't know what it's like to have a tingling in the back of the neck. It's only pleasant sensations that aren't completely absorbing, but, um, but they feel well, if the pleasant sensation has arisen, the mind goes to it, and uh, no, the mind's interested in it, isn't it? Yeah. So that's why it goes to it, yeah. and as it goes to it, it will uh, always fall off it, and then it will go back to it, and eventually there'll be a concentration. Um, the uh, absorption, the word absorption is a translation of the word jhana and uh, not dhyana with a d but jhana with a j and um, it just means that the mind has become absorbed in its object and doesn't think anymore you know the object can be whatever it is, and it can be momentarily, of course. If the feeling is slight, the absorption is momentarily. So then, of course, one has to strengthen that, stay with it. Yes. It's very fleeting, so the, the, uh, the thing to do when it's very fleeting is to try and keep the mind on it because it's only fleeting because the mind is fleeting. The feeling can be, is there. So try to keep the mind on it. Strengthen the lens of it, right? Okay. Last night I spoke about the um, purification by overcoming doubt and using the five spiritual faculties which eventually become five spiritual powers. Now, when they're perfected. Now, these five spiritual faculties, of which all of us have the, um, at least the seed in us, and uh, practically everyone will have some of these faculties quite well developed and others not so well, 
these lead us in the direction or are our tools I should say for overcoming doubt now overcoming doubt comes about when we have actually seen the three characteristics of the universe and our five spiritual faculties are the tools we use for that now obviously meditation is included because it includes concentration the five the three uh, characteristics I've mentioned them before I mention them again because they are so to say the kernel or the essence around which it all turns impermanence unsatisfactoriness dukkha and corelessness now impermanence is constantly covered over by continuity now it's never occurred to us probably until we came here that our breath is completely impermanent maybe it has still hasn't occurred to us but I've been stressing it because it's continuous it's impermanent but it's continuous it keeps coming and the same with walking or moving any movement our heartbeat our thoughts our feelings every one of these things is completely impermanent but we don't look at it and we don't notice it because it keeps coming over and over and over breathing 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 thinking 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 so with that continuity happening it appears to be like a stream and we don't see that each item is impermanent in itself completely changeable because of that and because of that also not satisfactory because be it ever so nice it won't remain this stream of things happening is our difficulty in recognizing ourselves as a completely impermanent phenomena as I mentioned before looking at our old photos if we were to notice this constant change in us of cells breaking up and coming together we wouldn't be surprised that we look so utterly different every few years or wouldn't resent it that we do because obviously we don't become much prettier it's the other way around isn't it so this continuity that happens because the cells come back together again prevents us from knowing that they're falling apart that there's a constantly constancy in this impermanence a person who has faith 
and confidence in Buddha Dhamma Sangha would investigate that as their primary object of investigation, impermanence. Now that investigation has many facets and we have touched upon quite a number of them. We've touched upon decay, disease and death, all that is mind, dear and delightful will change and vanish, the first four of the five recollections. We have touched upon and spoken about the impermanence of breath, of movement, of thought and of feelings. And it is the meditation subject itself also in our sweeping method that we, uh, produces an understanding of impermanence and also the mind that's watching the meditation subject is also not solid but impermanent. It arises and ceases. Now that is difficult to see when there is some concentration and no distraction. When we're totally distracted, it's very easy to see. Very easy to see that the mind comes and goes. But when there's some concentration, we can't see that anymore. Again, we are fooled by continuity. In reality, the four, or actually the five khandas, the five aggregates, are heaps. They're nothing that is solid, but they're heaps of particles that appear to be solid because they're heaped together. <coughs> Our thought process is heaped together. Now, if we become very mindful and attentive to the mm -hmm. thought process, even the one that is watching the meditation subject, we can see that it doesn't have solidity. It has continuity. And this is something that is very important to recognize first as an intellectual understanding that all this continuity refuses to give way to our understanding of impermanence. In fact, humanity loves continuity. Old castles, antiques, traditions, the more of it the better. It appears to make us more solid. We've been here for so long and obviously we're going to go on. All these things are a support system for the illusion that we live under which is contrary to the understanding that there aren't any solid building blocks in the whole of the universe. Now if we have faith in what we call the three jewels, Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, this will be our most prominent investigation subject. Out of those three, everybody usually selects one which they like best. It's most interesting. And obviously, since we are changing all the time, we might be changing also 
our investigation subject. One time we like impermanence a lot, and other times we can't stand it, and we'd rather think about uh, in corelessness. And sometimes we probably rather think about nothing of the sort. But the phase of overcoming doubt has as its characteristic that the contemplation and investigation into the three characteristics becomes habitual. One sees everything in the light of one of these. That doesn't mean that they become unpleasant to us. On the contrary, they no longer hold out the false promise. They're no longer glittering like fool's gold. They just are. So if there's a great deal of confidence, we usually choose impermanence. But we also choose impermanence if we have seen a bit of it and that seeing has helped us to get started on the understanding that this is the most prominent aspect which is readily available to our understanding. It is the one that's most readily available. Dukkha is, of course, equally readily available, but because we consider dukkha something unpleasant, we really don't want to know about it. So many people think of dukkha as something negative something that they'd rather not pay attention to or consider it a personal problem. Well, it isn't any of that. In actuality, Dukkha is our best teacher. You see, if you say to the teacher now, you know I've had enough of all this, my knees are hurting, my back is not feeling very good, and I don't like to get up that early in the morning, I'm going home. Teacher's going to say to you probably, well, that's a great pity, but if you want to go home, well, you'll have to go home. Now, you say that to Dukkha. You say, you know, I don't like any of this. I don't want to get up in the morning, and I don't like these hurting knees and my back. It's very unpleasant. I'm going home. Dukkha will say to you, that's fine but I'm coming along. (laughs) There's no better teacher. It's the one which will stay with us until we have finally made the break. He'll always be around. And he keeps on teaching us. (laughs) It. (laughs) I don't know why I'm saying he (laughs) I'm trying to see whether it's he in German Um, 
No, it's it, it in German. <laughs> it's definitely it in German. So we'll call it it. We don't want to be discriminatory. And having you having it, we all have it, using it as a teacher, we are making the best possible use of it. There's no other way that it has any usefulness for us. We have so many ways of dealing with dukkha, all of them non-productive. The first and most popular one is to blame someone else. That's our most popular way of dealing with dukkha. Now, usually (coughs) it's the person that is nearest, for convenience's sake, of course, but also because we know enough about that person so that we feel we're justified to blame that one. If we don't have anybody near or we don't want to spoil our relationship, then we can blame other situations that which are a little more neutral and further away, like governments, weather, economy, uh, European market, or whatever it may be. But we actually, we find someone. And if we can't find someone, we blame ourselves. And none of that has any value. Then we have another way of dealing with dukkha. Running away from it. Moving to a different part of the country. Moving to a different country. Changing one's partner. Changing one's diet. Changing one's exercises changing one's teacher, changing one's meditation, changing one's job, whatever else one can change. Moving from the city to the country, moving from the country to the city, whatever it is that we can dream up, we move. And this movement is the most prominent cover for Dukkha. We do that in the meditation. We get an unpleasant sensation in the body and we move. We do that all day long. We sit, we stand, we walk, we lie, we get an unpleasant sensation and we move. Lying down we get up, getting up we lie down and so forth. Movement is the cover. Just as continuity is the cover for impermanence, movement is the cover for dukkha. If we don't move, just sit still and see how it is. We recognize what it's all about. We have other ways of trying to get rid of it. We distract ourselves. And, of course, that's a huge industry. Magazines, newspapers, television, radio, telephones, uh, novels, films, movies, whatever we can find. It's a huge industry, and it provides exactly what people want, namely, they want to distract themselves from their own dukkha. And then we have, of course, self-pity. That's another one that we can use, and it's also quite popular. (laughs) We're sorry for ourselves. Why should all these things happen to me? I've never done anything bad. What's the matter with the world? They're not appreciating my worth. Nobody knows all the good things about me. And when we get so steeped in self-pity, it can happen. 
that one falls into depression. The next step after self-pity is depression. Because there's nobody that will help one out of self-pity. One has to do it oneself. On the contrary, if one is really full of self-pity, other people would like to get away from one. They don't really want to be confronted with that. They've got their own dukkha. So self-pity is one movement and then depression. We get into depression, of course, that's a hard one. It takes time and effort to get out of that. All of these are the ordinary way of dealing with what we call my problems. They never are my problems. They are universal difficulties. And they become my problems when, first of all, I hang on to them and consider them my property. And secondly, if I react to them with dislike then it becomes a problem. As soon as I don't react to it with dislike, but look at it with interest and recognize the fact that this is just another aspect of existence. And it only becomes dukkha if I resent and resist it. Then, I can see that there's no dukkha. It just is. So somebody speaks unpleasantly, abusively, aggressively, and my immediate reaction is, I don't like it, I'm feeling hurt by that, and obviously I don't want it. So I have dukkha. But if that person is speaking abusively, aggressively, and my reaction is he or she is speaking abusively or aggressively, there's no dukkha. What is there to be unhappy about? He or she is just speaking like that. Things just are. If I take it on to myself as being something that has to do with this illusory me and I resist and resent it, then of course, immediate dukkha. And this is the aspect which we can prove for ourselves quite easily. If you have at this present moment any dukkha in your life, anything at all that you'd rather not have, something that you have which you'd rather not have, or something that you don't have and would like to have. And for one moment only, drop the either wanting to have it or the wanting to get rid of it. Just drop it completely. There's immediately no dukkha. Things just are. There's nothing but peace. It just is. Just for one moment to drop it. Of course, we pick it up immediately again. But we can eventually drop it for two moments, three moments, and maybe even for a whole day. And we can see that nothing but our resistance to whatever there is, is or our craving for whatever we haven't got, is producing every single problem that we've ever had or will have. 
Now you need to check that out for yourselves if you'd like to get rid of dukkha. If you want to keep your dukkha, of course, you don't have to do a thing because you're going to keep dukkha automatically and there's nothing to be done. But if you'd like to get rid of it, check that out. Once when I was on, um, in my nunnery in Sri Lanka, I was teaching a group of Singhalese teenaged girls meditation and about the Dhamma. And I told them exactly that, what I've just told you. And I asked them to please make this experiment that particular day and let me know the next day whether they had succeeded in that experiment. Well, only one girl said she had made the experiment successfully. So I asked her what it was. And she said that all the time she'd been on the island, she'd been looking at this little cushion with a tassel and coveting it thinking it was very pretty and how she could get one and how she could make one and where she could get all the ingredients to make one with. And it was not only um, distracting her from her meditation, it was actually upsetting her. And when she heard about this, that she could drop it, she dropped the idea of having a thing like this and her meditation worked. So obviously this was a small matter but for a teenage girl, it wasn't quite as small as it may sound. I mean, she really had taken a strong liking to this thing. So she proved to herself and probably also to her mates that it did work. The others hadn't even tried. I'm suggesting the same experiment to you. Try it today. Whatever it is that's bothering you, drop it and see whether it works. Pick out one thing, maybe not the biggest thing in your life that's bothering you, maybe the third or fourth biggest thing, <laughs> and drop it completely. Say, it's okay the way it is. It doesn't have to be otherwise. We'll just leave it the way it is, just that way, and feel the relief. Feel the utter relief from the whole tension, because wanting and not wanting, are both tension. You can see that when you go for something, you want to grasp it. There has to be tension in order to get it. If you want to get rid of it, there has to be tension, physical tension, to get rid of it. It's the same in the mind. There's always tension in wanting and rejecting. Now, obviously, in the beginning of practice, we have to remind ourselves again and again and again to do that and we forget and we'll have dukkha but that's fine because dukkha keeps us on the path if we don't have the recognition of it we become probably complacent and think well it's okay everything's alright so what's there to practice who needs to sit every day it's really a bother and we won't do it. So dukkha arising again and again is to be welcomed and we should be actually grateful to it. We should make a loving-kindness meditation to dukkha <coughs> and be grateful to it that it arises 
in such measure that we can deal with it. There are dukkha situations in the world today where people can no longer deal with them. They are so overwhelming that there's no way that their minds can deal with them. They are totally engrossed in that dukkha. But our dukkha isn't like that at all. Our dukkha is more on the level where it is actually spiritual practice. And if we know that and see that, we'll be very happy. Because dukkha is nothing to be unhappy about. Nothing at all. It's just something that arises because out of the ideas that we have, that we ought to have certain things and be certain things and be somebody, and out of these ideas, dukkha arises. And if we can drop it for just a moment, we'll learn from that quite clearly that it's all self-made, every bit of it, no matter what somebody else has done. All our dukkha is self-produced, And because it's self-produced, we can also ourselves remove it. If it weren't self-produced, we'd really be up the creek, wouldn't we? Because then we'd have to wait for somebody to remove it for us. And since everybody is so busy with their own affairs, we'd probably never find anybody to remove it for us. But we don't have to wait for that. It's self-produced and therefore can be self-removed. It's a matter of changing our thought pattern, rethinking. And because this way of thinking is foreign to most people, it's not that easy to do. We have got into a rut with our thinking. It's like a wet driveway on which a heavy truck is going back and forth, back and forth in the same rut. And it's been going back and forth for so many years now, probably for so many lifetimes, that the rut is so deep that we might need a crane to remove that truck from those ruts. And the crane is our meditation practice. But then, having got out of those ruts of thinking, not to make the same ones again, And this is where we have to be so careful about our mind. It's very easy to make ruts into it. And they seem to be the only way we can think because they've got so deep. But that is not so. We can change it. Especially if, because we're intelligent people, we can see that this is of no benefit either to ourselves or others. The moving away from dukkha through all these measures that we take is our cover-up for it. A person that has good concentration is usually a person who doesn't mind investigating dukkha. And this falls in with the ability (coughs) to go into the meditative absorptions. Now, the first one was impermanence, which is usually ascribed to people who have faith, confidence, one of the five spiritual faculties. 
Now this one is ascribed to a person who has concentration. Now the reason for that is that if a person who has no concentration but definitely has Dukkha because there's nobody exempt starts investigating Dukkha they feel as if they've got double Dukkha. They already have Dukkha and now they're supposed to investigate it. So they don't feel very happy about it. But if <coughs> concentration has arisen and we do have different levels of consciousness where there's absolutely no dukkha, where the mind is on a level where it is contented and peaceful, then to investigate dukkha is extremely interesting and can be quite pleasurable. Pleasurable for the simple reason that we can see our own foolishness. And if we have a slightest bit of a sense of humor, we'll laugh about ourselves because we can see quite clearly that any dukkha we have, we've put it there. And then we also know that we can take it away again. So a person with concentration can easily investigate dukkha because they come from a different level. They're not inside their dukkha, engrossed or um, overburdened with it, but they can look at it objectively. The third of the characteristics, anatta, literally translated means non-self. An is non and atta is self. <coughs> and because of that translation, always misunderstood. And also because of that translation, which is literal, considered to be something different from sunyata big arguments. Don't be fooled by arguments. It's all one and the same thing. Absolute truth is one, no matter how we get there. If there were so many different absolute truths, how would we know which one we want? We just want absolute truths, don't we? And uh, having choices of them, it doesn't make sense, does it? So I don't translate it as non-self, but as corelessness, substancelessness. Now that is overshadowed and covered up by solidity. Just feel and look at your body, so solid, <coughs> heavy, taking up room, taking up space. And even the thoughts and the feelings, they're very solid because we react to them. They make up our life. So how can there be no me? How can there be <coughs> substancelessness, corelessness, if all this has the appearance of solidity? That's the cover-up for it. Now a person whose mind has wisdom, which is one of the five spiritual faculties which went together with faith and confidence. In other words, an analytical mind, a mind which likes to investigate, has good quality for investigation, usually chooses that subject. The investigation has to go not for 
the non-self. We cannot investigate something that doesn't exist. That's absurd, isn't it? We have to investigate what we think exists. We have to investigate the me. Where, how does it exist? And if we do get a bit concentrated in meditation and then use that as an approach, we will undoubtedly come to the conclusion that me exists nowhere except in our own mind. It has dreamt it up. Why it has dreamt it up is not the crucial question. The crucial question is, having dreamt it up and living with it, does that produce peace and happiness? Now, all of that becomes very clear in meditation when we become either concentrated or absorbed. At the time of any kind of concentration or absorption, the me will have to be quiet. It cannot do anything at that time. We can either be self-conscious or concentrated. We can't be both. And since the real concentration, the first steps even of absorption, bring great peace and happiness, it shows us without a shadow of a doubt that we are much better off without that pesky and continually troublesome me idea. It shows us that from our own experience. Naturally, the minute the concentration is over, it does arise again. It arises very quickly because it has only been pushed aside, it hasn't been uprooted, but at least it gives us cause to wish, to practice, to diminish its strength. Now some of the methods we have already discussed, such as generosity and renunciation, loving-kindness and compassion, truthfulness to oneself, many of the virtues are all concerned with that. And then we will actually try to investigate ourselves in respect to this me idea. And the investigation is directed towards the aggregates. Body, which we may have already come to the conclusion that that can't be me, especially if the meditation has been concentrated enough to show the body in a totally different aspect, namely weightless and um, or actually having no borders to it. That's a very immediate proof of it. But even the inside method which I suggested of taking all the bits and pieces out and looking at them and saying which one's me may have already um, given rise to the discovery that the body, no, that's not me. So that we are left with the four parts of mind of which our most prominent are thoughts and feelings. 
So our investigation goes towards those. And we try to find the me in them. It's no use trying to find the not me. What we are looking for is substance, a core, something that remains, which we can call me. And this is very interesting to people who are analytically inclined, who like to analyze and um, take apart ideas and things, but they have to have the basis for that in the concentration because the ordinary, everyday kind of mind cannot see anything else other than I am trying to analyze. They cannot be, the ordinary mind cannot be objective enough to say analysis or mindfulness. These three characteristics, when they have been seen, at least partially, accepted totally, understood intellectually, are the purification by overcoming doubt. Faith, confidence and wisdom, energy coupled with concentration, are the tools with mindfulness at their head in order to help us to introspect. Mindfulness can also be called introspection. This will be the last step on this path that we are going to hear about in this course, first of all because of time limitation, but also because it's quite an um, advanced step in insight and about as much as we can probably swallow at this time. That'd be enough about that. If you have questions, please ask them. quite clear or totally muddled. Huh? <laughs> hmm? Yes. Uh, would you recommend uh, the laughter is helping with uh, what I think is a somewhat masochistic clinging on to as an as a, uh, aid in getting rid of hanging on to one's dukkha? Yes, but... Yes, it can help. Sure. Who's hanging on? I mean, the more deeply rooted aspects of uh, that psychologically perhaps 
we need a psychotherapist, but we're trying to do it by ourselves through meditation. Well, the meditative path and the path of the Buddha can be uh, therapy and uh, will be, but that's only one of its side effects. It's, um, it has a total transformation of the human being as, as its um, aim, and because of that total transformation, it has also total liberation as its um, purpose. But the side effect, is one of its side effects can be therapy, yes. Um, for a person who is analytically inclined and um, likes to think, is intellectually um, active, the investigation into anatta, into the non-self, can be productive if one investigates self. As I said before, don't make the mistake of thinking to investigate non-self. There's nothing to investigate. It doesn't exist, the non-self. So we have to investigate what we think self is. And as we investigate that, we are probably mostly concerned with feelings and thoughts. Even that we have to investigate, whether that is what we think we are. And when we think we are feelings and thoughts, then we can investigate those. And if, if we are very much clinging to particular kinds of feelings and particular kinds of thoughts, that may arise as an insight that this clinging helps us to continue the self-illusion. Practically everything we do, with very little exception, exception is meditation, is designed to help us continue our self-delusion. There's practically nothing other than meditation that we do. And even meditation doesn't always help us to get rid of the self-delusion, but if it gets concentrated, it certainly has that aspect. In the first instance, we meditate, of course, in order to get some peace and quiet and harmony and all the rest of it, which is fine. Nothing wrong with that. But as we do it, we do have to shut out the me in order to become concentrated. But whatever else we do in the world, no matter what it is, we can investigate anything, whatever it is, and see whether it is designed to protect to underwrite, to support self. And then we can see whether that is actually necessary, whether we can just do it because we stay alive, or whether there are other motivations. To investigate one's own motivations is a very important aspect of the practice. So the answer is yes, please investigate self in all matters. Anything else? Yes. Buddha nature, is that... Buddha stay? nature? Yeah, I heard that so many times. Well, Buddha stay nature is what... I. Well, Buddha nature is can be one of two things. It can be the enlightenment uh, state, enlightened state, 
or it can be the seed of enlightenment. And it's very often used as that, as a seed of enlightenment. You know, so um, one of the koans in the uh, uh, Zen tradition is, does the dog have Buddha nature? Well, who knows? I mean, it's a paradox, you know, it speaks from a level of absolute truth. So, um, uh, Buddha nature is very often considered to be the seed of enlightenment which rests in every human being. Anything else? Can you clarify the two meanings of dukkha? The more general, I understand the more general one is the, the specific meaning of it. Um, it means pain, grief, and lamentation. All things that are tragedy. It means um, everything that we find uh, negative. Whenever we have any kind of sorrow, grief, or problem, any time we, the mind is not happy, unhappiness, it's all dukkha. But primarily it means the unsatisfactoriness in all of existence because all of it is constantly changing and moving. That's its um, bare bones meaning. But for us, it also means all the things that we sorrow about, grieve about, and feel unhappy about. Anything else? 